Welcome to the New York City Hospitality Alliance podcast, the voice of New York City hospitality. The the film industry gets billions of dollars for being in the state of New York. We get zero. These are legitimate problems that we're facing as a society, not just here in New York City, of workers having a difficulty having a good middle class life. We are losing that creative class for a variety of reasons. Nightlife as we knew it then is disappearing rapidly from the city today. On this episode, we are going to talk about everything from the famous repeal of the cabaret license here in New York City, the complexity of the zoning laws. We're going to talk about live music and the venues, as well as the creative class, cannabis, and all the vacant storefronts that are in neighborhoods throughout our city. This podcast is supported by members of the New York City Hospitality Alliance. For links on topics we spoke about during the podcast, make sure to check out our show notes. Follow us on social media. Both Twitter and Instagram is at the NYC Alliance. That's at the NYC Alliance. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn at New York City Hospitality Alliance. So this is normally the time where we jump into the hospitality helpline segment, where I give you a tip or some information that's really important for business owners and operators to know. But today, we have a special guest, Max Bookman, from the law firm Pesesky and Bookman, who is going to give you a tip you do not want to miss. Hey folks, Max Bookman here. I'm a liquor licensing attorney at Pazetsky and Bookman. Our firm focuses on alcohol issues in New York City. And this week on the Hospitality Helpline, we're going to be talking about what you need to know before you sign a lease. So anyone out there who's opening up a new bar or a new restaurant and you're shopping around for a lease, do not sign it unless you've spoken with a liquor attorney who could talk to you about the potential consequences for alcohol licensing at that location. I can't tell you how many numbers of people walk into my office and they've already signed a lease. They've locked themselves into a 10-year, 20-year lease only to learn after they've spoken with me for about five minutes that they can't get the type of alcohol license there that they want to do. There's a lot of basic stuff out there that everybody knows. You can't be near a church. You can't be near a school. But it gets a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot of exceptions. There's a lot of things you may not have thought of. And what you don't want to be is one of these people who is stuck paying rent uh, for the type of establishment that does not have the liquor license that you need. So if you want to stay on top of all the changing laws, regulations, and trends impacting the hospitality industry, head to the New York City Hospitality Alliance website at thenycalliance.org, sign up for our newsletter, and stay in the know. Stay tuned at the end of the show for a little bit more from our friend Max Bookman. Okay, this is Andrew Riggi on the New York City Hospitality Alliance podcast. I am very excited to have an incredible guest, someone I have known for, I don't even know, maybe 15 years. He's been a mentor to me and so many in the industry. And something really special about him, you know there's people like Prince and there's Bono. In our circles, he goes by one name, and that is 
Bookman. Mr. Robert Bookman of the law firm Pesetsky and Bookman. Going way back, he used to work as counsel at the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs, but he has had his private practice for, I think, about 30 years or so, which we'll get into. And in that time, he's represented and created organizations, everything from the Nightlife Association to an organization representing newsstand operators, and of course, the New York City Hospitality Alliance. Mr. Robert Bookman, hello. Thank you, Andrew. So, doing this all these years, representing the restaurant and the nightlife industry, what has changed in the political environment? Wow, a lot, uh, both for the good and for the bad. Uh, When we started the first nightlife organization in the late 80s, that was called the uh, New York Cabaret Association, our first meeting in the Giuliani administration that we asked for, uh, the requirement was that we provide the social security numbers for all the board members in advance of the meeting because they want to do a background check. Uh, That's how nightlife was perceived. Uh, The deputy mayor at the time, Rudy Washington, uh, called nightclubs buckets of blood. And uh, so we respectfully demurred from having that meeting. We weren't going to do that. But that was the kind of stage we we were at. I mean, fast forward to today, the, uh, the situation is much different. Uh, we are a, in a decade into working with the New York City Police Department now. Um, we don't have to give our social security numbers when we meet with elected officials. Uh, they ask for our endorsements. Uh, so a lot has been positive. We set the groundwork for that over the last 20-some odd years. On the other hand, uh, nightlife as we knew it then is disappearing rapidly from the city today. Uh, It's very difficult to uh, even imagine a new large 4 a.m. closing dance club opening anywhere in New York City. Uh, Back then, uh, gentrification wasn't as widespread, so zoning really meant something. You had areas that residents didn't live in. And that's where people opened up late. Uh, Today, that's not so true anymore. There's virtually no place that doesn't have mixed use. So a lot of things have changed. Some have made it tougher for nightlife and and our industry, and some some things are better. So what is that? You hear a lot about New York City nightlife is dying. I know something that you and we've collectively advocated for many years was the creation of the Office of Nightlife, which was established. We were both appointed to the Nightlife Advisory Board. But something fundamentally has shifted in nightlife. You know, there's a few bigger clubs over the years that have opened in places in Brooklyn, but you're right. There are so few big old nightclubs like there used to be. What are the forces behind that? It's hard to determine whether it's just market forces and that young people today are not interested Mm. in that type of environment as they were, you know, 20 and 30 years ago. Um, Or is it that the regulatory framework, the difficulty in getting a liquor license, the difficulty in getting all the permits, uh, the constricted zoning over the decades, making fewer and fewer areas where you can open up a dance club as of right. Um, it's hard to figure out where the balance is. It, clearly, it's a combination of all of those. Uh, I don't think it's you could put the blame on any one thing. Um, I know my kids, are, you know, when they're in their 20s, they were looking more for... Uh, smaller places, more intimate places. 
social dancing does not, does not seem to be as popular as it once was. And with dancing, let's talk a little bit about the cabaret law that was repealed, I guess, last year. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk about that, some correct information. There was a lot of inaccurate information that people said, oh, now that we've repealed the cabaret law, you're just going to be able to dance in any bar or nightclub. Is that true? Not true? Not true. Uh, we were advocating certainly ever since they, that the New York Cabaret Association then morphed into a larger organization, the New York Nightlife Association. We were advocating for the elimination or the modification of the cabaret laws uh, for decades. Uh, but we were advocating for the elimination or modification of the underlying rules and requirements. What happened with the elimination of the cabaret law was really mostly form over substance. The cabaret law was administered by my old agency, the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs. It was nothing more, that license was nothing more in modern times. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, 40, 50, 60 years ago when it was used for all kinds of discriminatory purposes. It's what got Lenny Bruce, you know, uh, into court. I'm talking about in modern times, you know, 1980s on. The cabaret law was nothing more than a clearinghouse. It's that Consumer Affairs was ensured that you had all the other requirements, zoning, building, safety, uh, that allowed you to have a dance club. Uh, whether or not dancing was an appropriate uh, mechanism for regula- regulation, the cabaret law wasn't what regulated. It was all these other laws that regulated it. If a business allowed dancing, well, the fire department required certain safety systems. Mm-hmm. They felt uh, people, probably correctly, are less aware of their surroundings in a loud dance club than they are in a restaurant. So there were, there were all these safety requirements, which were expensive and kept getting more expensive after every major, you know, Blue Angel, Happy Land, every time there was a major incident, you know, all unlicensed illegal places, more safety laws went on. The zoning laws were really what determined where businesses could allow patron dancing. And they got more restrictive over time. When they repealed the cabaret law, they didn't change any of that. They just said, okay, that final document that you need, you don't need anymore. Hmm. So if, it, if you did not have the proper certificate of occupancy, if you did not have the proper PA permit for the use that allows for dancing, if you didn't have the right safety equipment the day before the cabaret law was repealed, you still could not legally dance the day after the cabaret law was repealed. So And still cannot. So I always knew land use was confusing, and now I'm on a community board, and I sit on the land use committee, and you start going through the zoning text and the amendments, and it is very dense and very complicated. But if we wanted to expand where you can dance at restaurants, bars, and nightclubs in New York City, what would have to be done if not repealing the cabaret law? What would have to be done is repealing certain language in the zoning law. Uh, There would have to be a recognition that whether or not there is dancing at a business is not really a land use issue. Maybe it once was in 1960 when the zoning law was passed and there was a real difference between a dance club versus a neighborhood bar or a neighborhood restaurant. So they separated those uses and they made the dance club uh, a much higher level of use, meaning much more land use impact. I think in the modern day where you can carry around more more music in your telephone than uh, a club could have had in 1960, I think it doesn't make sense anymore. So what we need to move towards and what we've always discussed in our organizations is 
having the city planning commission, which runs the zoning, remove that as a uh, as an issue in the zoning laws. And if that's removed as an issue in the zoning laws, then the only thing that remains is the safety issues. And I think that will never change, and probably for good reason. Uh, you know, I've met had many meetings over the years with fire department officials, and they're very persuasive that people's um, awareness of their surroundings definitely differs based on the kind of business that you're in. In a clothing store versus a, a restaurant versus a bar versus a dance club. So I think the safety systems will stay and there are expenses associated with that, I understand. But we want to continue to be, as we are, the safest nightlife city in the world. But it, that would change everything if we, if we were able to change the zoning laws. The problem with that is a lot of the community boards, like you were on, um, are generally filled with people who are not that young and not that tuned in, and they see that as a, an onslaught or a potential onslaught to wild raves, you know, in every residential building, commercial space downstairs. So there'll be a lot of public education that would have to go on uh, to convince the community boards and therefore the elected officials, and the city council has the ultimate say, even after the city planning would change the zoning law. A lot of work to be done. Sounds like a lot. So, you know, dancing and music often go hand in hand. And New York City has been so famous for all the great, you know, music. I was talking with one of our fellow Nightlife Advisory Board members, Curtis Blow, who's the iconic, you know, rapper, sure. hip-hop artist. I think he may have been one of the first, if not the first, uh, artist to be signed uh, to a major label. And then we've spoken about this. The city of New York put out a study, I think last year, showing this huge decline in the number of of live music venues in New York City. Is it that people don't like music? I can't imagine that. Um, or the way people are consuming music has changed? Or is there something that's more kind of underlying uh, that's changed or influenced this trend? There's something more underlying. I'll tell you a, you know, a true, funny, anecdotal story. Um, as we, as we say in the law, this, this story has the added advantage of being true. So I was at a community board uh, in the Lower East Side, uh, community board CB3, um, a number of years ago um, on the date that uh, the Times had a story that CBGB announced that it was going to close. Which is a famous music club where bands like the Ramones and punk rock really got its start. And Blondie, I, I'm dating myself, but I remember you know a friend of mine knocking on my door late at night. said, you got to come to me to this place, you know, and, you know, and see this group Blondie. So everybody at the beginning of the meeting was bemoaning, you know, this famous, at that point still internationally famous place was, was, was announcing that it was closing down. So I was there for a normal uh, liquor license application for a restaurant, but I told my client, you know, let, let's have a little fun. And when I was called up with my client to testify, your, your job is to give a, a summary to the audience and, you know, and, and the board about what your application is about. So I said, this is an application for a new live music club that will be opened uh, to 4 a.m., you know, seven days a week, that will be not upscale, that will be playing a type of music that probably nobody here in the audience is familiar with, um, and attracting a clientele that probably nobody here would be comfortable with. Uh, any, any problems, any questions? <laughs> and that was the reaction. Yeah. I, I was left. And then I said, well, of course, that's not why I'm here. But if CBGB, which you're all bemoaning is closing, came, if I was coming here... 10 years ago, 15 years ago with CBGB, that would have been the explanation of what that business was. And that's an example of where we are at. Unfortunately, you cannot make a living with live music 
today even more so than years ago without a liquor license. And to get a liquor license, you have to go through the community boards, and the community boards are extraordinarily prejudiced against live music. The same thing we said before about zoning, multiply it 10 times here. Most of them even have it on their application. Will you have live music? If so, what kind? Will it be amplified? I mean, what their concern should be is, are you going to be in compliance with the city noise code? Not are you going to have live music or not? I can play louder music with, uh, you know, with an iPad. Yeah, who cares? It's the level of the sound. It's not the type of music that's being played, whether it's acoustic or live or. Uh, but I think there's a certain element of they don't like the type of people that are attracted to live music clubs, and uh, and it's not they're not going to these live music clubs. It's not the village vanguard of the 1960s where you're, you're sitting quietly at tables and you know and you know and listening to music you know and quietly clapping. Uh, so I mean, we could name probably two of us here in a couple of minutes the, the, the huge number of live music clubs yeah. that have closed over the years you know Wetlands Brownies uh, Coney Island High CBGB's I mean the list goes on and on and on New York used to be one of the centers of live music. Uh, entire music forms like salsa started here. You know, artists, uh, so like we just mentioned, and uh, you know, not to mention Bob Dylan and others got their start here. Uh, that's not happening anymore. It's such a shame. I mean, it, music adds so much to our culture, to everything that's the essence of New York City. And in so many ways, it's a dying breed. Fortunately, there are little pockets where I think it's still exciting and people are into it, but we really need our elected representatives and others, which they're starting to do to really recognize the vitality of this industry. They need to do more than do lip service to it, which is an issue we often face. Uh, they talk the talk, but they, they really don't walk the walk. Um, there's also a whole library and coursework on the issue of the creative class and how important creative class is to the city. People in our industry instinctively know that. Their employees, their waiters, their waitresses, are our actors, their writers, they've come to New York over historically, they're musicians, you know, to you know, where they can work in our places a few nights a week, you know, with tips, make enough of a living to support their, you know, what they're really here for, which is to, you know, become famous and write the great American song or novel. That creative class is very important. It's what attracts places like, you know, big companies like Google and, and others to want to come here. We are losing that creative class for a variety of reasons. They can't afford to live here anymore. There aren't the venues for them, you know, to do things. And those are some of the pressures that we face as a larger industry. Yeah, and I think which we'll get into, the regulatory environment in general makes it so difficult for these smaller mom-and-pop first-time operators to open up a business and actually be successful. And so many of these music groups or these iconic bars and nightclubs uh, that have opened and are now closed do so in many reasons because the cost of doing business and the challenges and the regulatory environment. So let's go back a little bit to the community board um, issue. What is the process and what do business owners need to know when they're going for a liquor license? Because I hear two things. One, I hear from experienced bar owners, restaurant owners, that going in front of the community board in specific neighborhoods can be extremely, extremely challenging. They never know exactly what to expect. And then for 
the poor person that decided, hey, I'm going to open up my first place. They have no idea what to expect of the community board. And then they go there and they think they're going to open up a great business. They're going to source locally, hire people from the neighborhood, create a great new establishment for the community to enjoy. They get shot down. So what should business owners know when going for a liquor license, particularly getting ready for the community board process? I don't want to attack community boards generically. Uh, there's 51 of them, I think, in the city, and there are 51 different you know, approaches. Uh, and they're not all anti-business, you know, not, not at all. Uh, and they're all volunteers, and I respect that. They put a lot of hours in. Um, and they generally work in the, in the committee structure, meaning uh, they have a parks committee, they have a landmarks committee, they have a land use committee, and they all have some sort of licensing committee. Uh, you need experience with your community board if you're going to file for a liquor application. Uh, the liquor laws require, even though they're state laws, that there be local input, uh, generally outside of New York City. That's the, an elected town council. Um, we rarely have any negative feedback outside of New York City from town councils. Uh, they generally are happy for a new business to open. Uh, there may be a little give and take about you know, certain things. Uh, New York City, it's not the city council, however. The state law says it's the community boards. And because the community boards are not elected and, and they're not townwide or citywide, they have more of a myopic view of things. Uh, how does it impact us in our neighborhood or sometimes our block as residents? It's not a balanced, larger approach. And I understand that. That's what they are. They're not elected officials. They're local residents for the most part, and they're interested in their own quality of life. So there is a certain built-in nimbyism. There's a certain built-in, I've got my uh, cabin in the woods now, and I don't want any, any more development you know, in my, in my area. So I got to say, if, if you are uninitiated, if you haven't gone through the process before and you're doing it on your own without professional help, you can be shocked. You could be surprised at the level of detail. You think you're going to review alcohol and they're there to review where you're putting your garbage. How is your kitchen venting? Things that they have no say in if you weren't going for a liquor license. Where are your smokers going to go? Things that you're not prepared to deal with. Um, and while most applications, I, I've still, at the end of the day, most applications do get approved you know, for liquor, but with a long list of stipulations. And, and that's because attorneys like us who do this for a living will discourage people from even filing some applications because there's, there's just no shot that they're going to get approved. You, you know, somebody comes in here and wants to do a 4 a.m. bar, a new 4 a.m. bar replacing a, a grocery store you know, that's out of business on the Lower East Side. You know, after we stop laughing, we tell them, you know, you know not this office, you know, and, and there are other plenty of good lawyers who will tell them the same thing, you know, not just look to get a fee. And I think that is a part what the community boards want, uh, and that's fair. On the other hand, what's not fair is while not every block is appropriate for, let's say, a 4 a.m. bar or a club, some blocks have to be appropriate. And the community boards do not give feedback as to saying, we like you, you seem to be a potential good operator, it's this location that we don't like. If you applied on this block, we, we would approve you. They don't do the second part. So there's a lot of guessing going on, and, and that's unfair to potential business owners. 
Yeah, no, I know being on a community board, you're always trying to balance the interests of the residents, of the business, and find out what's not only good for the community, but I also think it's also important you know, for our city as a whole. Perhaps if there was more of a understanding of what was expected of business owners, um, what the neighborhood, what the community board wanted, uh, it could help. It also gets back to our zoning conversation. Previously, you know, when we were going to community boards in the 1990s and I wanted to put a club on... You know, 28th Street between 11th and 12th Avenues, uh, we really didn't get much, you know, much, much pushback. There wasn't anybody living anywhere near there. Yeah, as a result, uh, one of the negative things under Mayor Bloomberg is you know, he, he believes that residential development belongs anywhere they want to build it. And they would do spot zoning changes. You know, they didn't change and didn't go through the whole zoning resolution. But you wanted to build, you know, a, you know expensive building with a studio starting in a million dollars on the block where there were large nightclubs. Sure, go ahead. And then those people uh, move into these apartments that are advertised as being in a cool neighborhood. And then like Casablanca, they're shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on in the back room. Um, and the elected officials respond to voters. That's that's the nature of it. And these people are voters. So that's part of the problem. The part of the problem is I understand from a community board perspective, we want to protect our residents, but there is no sense of who came first or where you moved into. Yeah, more of like a master plan for the city. We talked about this with Jim Peters at the Responsible Hospitality Institute, really looking at a city and saying, how is nightlife and the nighttime economy going to play into the overall city during the day? and during the night? And then how do we plan for, manage, and then police nightlife versus just rushing to policing and shutting places down? Right. Historically, New York City, you know, we're a very small town in, in many ways. We, you know, we're the center of the universe, and we know everything. Um, but when you get involved with organ- national and international organizations like RHI, uh, and many people in our industry have gone to you know, their meetings around the country, you'll, you'll see that um, people... You will learn that what we instinctively know. People are going to go out. They're going to go out late at night. They have been doing it for centuries. They will continue to do it. More young people than, than old, but others as well. They have different needs and wants when they go out. I remember Jim Peters once saying that you know they did a survey of women and men, and women had a list of things: clean bathroom, safe environment, you know, nice place to talk, you know, dr- good drinks. Men was you know beer and girls. You know, those are, those are, those are the two things. But you know, joking aside, there, there are these needs. So for a city or any municipality, the question is not will we have nightlife, but where will it be, and will it be a safe, regulated nightlife? And that's what you want. You don't want happy lands. You don't want uh, situations like that where unsafe, underground nightlife develop, where there are no safety systems, there are no liquor licenses, there's nothing there, and inevitably tragedies occur in those in those places. So uh, Ariel Pallets, who's a former community board member, bar owner, we've known her for many years, was selected by Mayor de Blasio's administration as the nightlife mayor of the Office of Nightlife here in the city. Um, So considering we now have that role, we have our advisory board, um, but let's talk about just the city council and city politics um, in general. How do they view the business community? I always say, you know, people love to say, we love small business, and they bemoan when their favorite mom and pop cafe or bar closes. But then the same people that are saying we love these small businesses often are the ones that are passing policies that make it more and more difficult for them to actually operate and operate successfully. So my question is, how has 
the politics maybe changed over the years? And how do you view the current city council's relationship with the small business community? It's a complicated answer to a complicated question. Uh, I, hope, I hope I can do it justice. I'm old enough and have been around and, and advocating for small businesses long enough to say, like I did at the beginning, that the overall environment is much more positive. Back then, people weren't talking about small businesses. It was just a given. They're there. They'll always be there. The stores are filled. If it's not that store, it'll be another store. Um, that's not the case anymore for a number of years now. I would say ever since you know, Mayor Bloomberg. His position was that about, well, you know, he was pro-big business. He had no interest in small business. Uh, when we complained to him about how fines had jumped by the tens of millions of dollars under his administration, his response was, comply with the law and you won't get fined. Like it was that easy. Like as if it was that easy. Um, so we have definitely changed you know, since then where we now have people in the council who talk a good talk about small businesses, who really advocate in their speeches and for small businesses, uh, Rafael Espinal has done more than that. I mean, repealing the cabaret law was, you know, at least it was a, it was a, a, a pro small business step in the right direction. Uh, there are other uh, many bills have been introduced going back to Gifford Miller as speaker, but they don't get passed. You know, they get so far as hearings. Uh, they tend to revolve around, you know, not you know, not to be too skeptical around times where speakers are running for mayor and we get a lot of good bills introduced and we get a lot of hearings on those bills and then they don't seem to, you know, you know, to get passed or if they do get passed, they get lip service. For example, um, when uh, the, the two election cycles ago, uh, the council passed a bill uh, when there was a mayoral election going on um, requiring the six city agencies that regulate small businesses and issue the most fines to small businesses, that they go through all of their rules and regulations and report back to the council with a list of items that could have a warning and an opportunity to cure on a first time rather than an automatic fine. Things that did not imp implicate public safety. You know, for example, a sidewalk cafe whose barrier was planters and the barrier by law is supposed to be 30 inches high. And at the end of the season, it's 34 inches high because your planters grew. We're getting a violation under Bloomberg <laughs> for having too high you know, rather than giving somebody a warning saying, you know, cut down your, you know, your plants. Um, so that law was passed. That, that's one of the few that was passed. But what, the, what happened is the Bloomberg administration gave you know, a big middle finger to the council and came back in the reporting time and only said sign violations. That's it. That's the only thing that we could give a warning to is sign violations. Um, and the health department even exempted itself from that. <laughs> and the health department is one of the agencies that is most... Uh heavy in the way they regulate the restaurant industry. So that law did pass. The mayor reluctantly signed it as he was walking out the door. It was still $20 million saved in fine violations. Um, but so politically now, things have changed. I think that we've made our case that small businesses are important. They are seeing a substantial, in my lifetime, unprecedented number of empty stores. Um, it is our job as, as an industry to all the people who are listening, who have a council member that comes eat you know, at their place or have a drink, to sit down and explain to them that there is no coincidence between the number of vacant stores in the city and the various laws, what they call the progressive legislation that have been passed over the last couple of years that 
make it more difficult for us to do business successfully, more, more difficult for us to be profitable. Yes, it's, it's great to raise the minimum wage. Yes, it's great to have paid sick leave and paid family leave and, and paid health insurance. But the employer can't be the only one responsible for all of these. And these types of legislation where the city is waving a magic wand and saying, we're going to give all these goodies out, but we're not going to pay for any of these goodies. We're going to tell the employer it has to pay 100% of it. Uh, And there are more things being contemplated in Albany now. We've got to educate them better that there's a direct connection between the two. You want more vacant stores? Well, then keep passing those types of legislation, especially keep passing those types of legislation without any offsets. And it's something you talk about all the time. You know, the the film industry gets billions of dollars for being in the state of New York. We get zero. Every time they raise tax, the real estate taxes, we pay for it. Um, you know, they wage wage increases, we pay for it. Uh, we get we, we create open a, a business, create new jobs. We get no business credits, no tax credits, nothing for it. It is uh, national uh, surveys of small businesses have have demonstrated time after time that the thing that small businesses complain about the most is the regulatory burden and the cost and the difficulty in complying with those regulations, which small businesses want to do. So uh, that's a great point and a good transition. So, you know, if you're a restaurant operator, bar, nightclub, what can you really do? You know, I talk to people all the time. And they often feel that their voice isn't being heard. And it's interesting, too, when you're in a progressive city where, you know, we're supposed to be listening to the people and the working people. And guess what? People that own restaurants and bars, those are working people. And they're working 24-7, nights, weekends, holidays. Um, what can they do? Obviously, they can become members of organizations like the New York City Hospitality Alliance, But what should they be doing to make sure that their elected officials are not only listening to them, but really hearing them and hopefully taking action in support of them? Before I answer that question, I want to say that these are legitimate problems that we're facing as a society, not just here in New York City, of workers having a difficulty having a good middle class life. It's not a New York City small business created problem. It's a national problem. If you look at uh, the elections in Europe recently, it's an international problem. Through automation, through international trade and other issues, lots of good middle-class paying jobs have, in fact, disappeared. And unfortunately, they're not coming back. You know, Trump with all his nationalism notwithstanding, they're not coming back. So people who maybe had a starting job as a, a minimum wage employee in a McDonald's or something like that moved on you know, years ago and decades ago to other middle class, to, to a good middle class job. They weren't supporting their family on a minimum wage job. I recognize that the things have changed. And there are as many, I think, as, the, you know, when they were talking about $15 an hour for uh, for fast food, they were saying as many as a third of the people that work in fast food places now actually have to support their family on that. The problem is minimum wage was never designed to support a family on a minimum wage job. And you can't just magically throw in all these extra costs and expenses and click your heels three times and say, poof, a starting job opening up uh, boxes you know, in, in Dwayne Reed and taking the shampoos out and putting them on the shelves is now going to be a good middle-class job with middle-class benefits because 
it can't support that. Yeah, you can't legislate an entry-level job into a middle-class job living in one of the most expensive cities on the globe. So there may be a need to expand the social safety net, but the government, like traditional safety nets, when Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment insurance, disability insurance, all of those classic post-World War II safety net increases, they were either funded by government, run by government, or they were plans that everybody kicked into. The government kicked in, the employees kicked in, the employers kicked in something uh, to ease the pain. This new wave of, you know, we're just going to say the employer is going to pay 100% of it, that, that is new. So to answer your question, um, it, I know it'll be self-serving to say you need to join an organization like ours, but you need to join an organization like ours. The more members we have, uh, the more educated our members. You, do a gr- you and the staff do an incredible job educating our members through our website and, and, and training programs about what's going on out there. Uh, the training programs alone are very helpful for small business owners as, as far as compliance and keeping their fines down. So they need to do that. But they need to get active and involved as well. Uh, I know they're busy. I know it's hard running you know, business. But if they belong to an organization you know, like, like the New York City Hospitality Alliance, we provide easy mechanisms for them to reach out to their elected officials um, and make their voice heard. Because the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, that's really what counts. Local elected council people hearing from their local business people saying, you know, council member, I don't know if I can keep my doors open if, uh, if you pass this law. I just don't know. It's not that profitable anymore. This will take away my profit. Or... Council member, I'm, you know, I run a, the local McDonald's. I'm a franchisee. I'm going to replace all 12 people that uh, take your orders with one person, one cash, and the others are going to be iPads. Um, so, yes, those remaining will have better benefits, but we'll have half the number of employees. You know, you, which do you want? And I got to raise prices, by the way, on top of it. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just been an ongoing issue and it seems we continue to have these conversations and I'm hoping that a lot of these elected representatives will really start to understand that people aren't just talking they're under a lot of pressure and I think they do see it when they walk through the neighborhood they see vacant storefronts they go into their local bar for a drink or dinner at their restaurant and they're talking with the owners to actually listen to what the people are saying and then hopefully crafting legislation and policies that will help um, support them and it's not just the rents anymore so, yes, I'm one of the things that elected officials should really be doing is going out, which I hope they already are, to their local restaurant, going to get a drink at their local bar, and listening to the business owners and the people running those stores about the challenges, and then crafting legislation and enacting policies that are actually going to help them. Because every neighborhood you go to, there seems to be these groups popping up now that want to save our storefronts. They get it. People love to shop online, and the way people shop and consume everything is really changing and changing rapidly but it is a shock when you go into certain neighborhoods and there's one vacant storefront after another after another and it's not like something's coming in to replace it they just sit there and some of them are really really big spaces that can take up half a block in your estimation why is this happening and can anything be done to help uh, keep stores and attract new stores we're, we're downtown now, where my office is on Broadway and Worth Street. I've been here for 30 years, so I've lived through you know, 9-11 down here when we had a lot of vacant stores. I've got to tell you, this is the worst that it's been since, since then, and that was only this neighborhood. 
Uh, I've never seen so many closed stores. And it's not just the rents. For a time, yes, people were going out of business. They had a long-term lease. It was a really low rent. The building changed ownership in the meantime. The new people paid a fortune for the building. To pay their mortgage, they had to double the rents. That was true for a period of time. Now, anecdotally, you know, you because know, we do a lot of liquor license work, so we see the people coming in here early with the leases. People are looking for new spaces because their landlord won't lower their rent enough, and the next guy will. Um, you're not seeing people buying existing businesses anymore, which was, by the way, the retirement plan for a lot of people in our industry, uh, because you can just wait for them to go out of business and you can get the place vacant. You know, why, why pay, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars for an existing business when they'll be vacant in a couple of days or you know, in a couple of months? Uh, or there's another store right next door. Uh, this is a serious problem. And it's not just the rents. It's this entire uh, regulatory burden, you know, you know our, for, our former president says it's death by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. There's no one thing here that is killing retail business, but it's a lot of things altogether. It's what you said. Um, so, you know, in terms of people not shopping on, you know, shopping online a lot more. Um, and there's a question nationally about whether retail is going to survive. But if that's true, and I believe it is, then you need a municipality that has a pro storefront business plan. What are we going to do to get new businesses into these storefronts? And and there needs to be an actual strategy for that. And reducing the cost of doing business and the regulatory burden clearly has to be at, at the center of that. Uh, an easy thing they could do is getting rid of this ridiculous you know, commercial rent tax that stores south of 96th Street, pay, in, in addition to the landlord's you know, real estate taxes, we pay t- a commercial rent tax for the privilege of renting a space you know, in Manhattan. Which is absurd because it's based on your annual rent, not based on sales, which is the complete opposite of what a tax is usually I mean, it's a, based on. They've they, they got to get rid of that tax altogether. It's gone everywhere else in the city. The concept that south of 96th Street, we're going to keep it because... Everybody wants to be there and there won't be any vacant stores south of 96th Street, so why should we get rid of the tax there, is now proven to be not true. Uh, There's a huge number of vacant stores south of 96th Street. So they, I mean, we've spoken to Corey Johnson about this, the Speaker of the City Council. His district, you know, the Village and West Chelsea has a lot of vacant stores. He is looking for solutions. We're talking to him. Individual store owners and other people need to talk to him. You need a pro-real estate pro-small business uh, plan of action, and it's going to be a series of laws to make it profitable for people to open a business there, and not just another bank. And, and they've opened enough already. They yeah, don't I, want them anymore. I mean, I have And a these couple- national chains who didn't care if they made any business, made business there, they just wanted a presence there, they're closing down. You know, yep. vacant stores on Fifth Avenue. Yeah, when you see the big international chains, and you see the banks, and you see the pharmacies actually closing stores, then you really know that there's a big issue. And they live, leave big, empty storefronts. So, so let me tell you, they either got to do something like that, then we're happy to sit down and go over specific ideas, you know, with them, or they better change the zoning laws to start allowing uh, residential uh, development on ground floors in all of these commercial corridors, because there's not going to be stores there. You know, we kept talking about how expensive just the cost of living and running a business is in New York City, and you mentioned the liquor licenses and seeing, like, who's opening up. Um, Who are the people that are either opening the restaurants or or investing in the restaurants? Are they local people? Are they from the U.S.? Are they international? Um, Where's the money coming from 
to open up new places? We've seen a lot of changes in 30 years since you know, we've been doing liquor licenses. Uh, but I would have to say that now the mom and pop coming to our office with, to open up their first one is becoming a, a dying breed. It's just too complicated uh, you know, to comply with all the laws. Uh, they, they can't do it. Uh, the profit margins are too low. Uh, we're in single digits in this industry now on profit margins. Um, so then there was a period of time where it was still local people, um, but there were local you know, uh, you know, investment firms that still felt it was good to put money into somebody who already had a track record and was now opening a second or a third. And that's how we got a lot of re- what we now call restaurant groups. That didn't exist for the most part, you know, back, you know, 30, 40 years ago. You were a successful restaurateur. You operated your restaurant. That's what, that's what you did. Um, then the restaurant group came where you would have multiple locations and not generally not the same name on, on the door, but experienced restaurateurs and know how to run a restaurant. So they would open a different kind of restaurant. And there was you know, a significant amount of private investment money that came into that because it was double digit you know, profits. That money has dried up. That money goes where they can make money. And if they can't make money mm-hmm. you know, in, in restaurant industry or nightclubs, they don't make then they go somewhere else. So that money has dried up. So now we're actually seeing even a, another change where it's large you know, uh, international groups coming in, international money coming in, who want a presence in the United States. They're popular in England. They're popular in Japan. They feel they can make it here. Um, and they're opening large numbers of places with large, you know, international dollars. The other thing I wanted to say was that the other change that we're seeing as a result of all of these uh, uh, decrease in profitability and increase in the you know, cost of doing business is fewer and fewer New York restaurateurs opening up another full service restaurant, even as part of a restaurant group. They are now moving towards fast casual. Um, and while there may be a good a market reason for that, it's not good for jobs. It's, it's not good for all the issues that the progressive politicians are worried about because there are significantly fewer employees in a fast casual. And if they have a bunch of them, they generally often don't even have a kitchen in the back. They have a commissary, a central commissary, which may even be in New Jersey, where the food is brought into. Um, and the jobs aren't as high paid. You know, our waiters and waitresses, and these, these places don't have waiters and waitresses. The, those waiters and waitresses in full services restaurants in New York, as we discussed, make a good middle class living. You know, uh, and, uh, you know, standing behind a counter in a fast casual, you don't Um, yet that. So when when the mayor, you know, says, oh, I checked with the health department and the number of health department licensed locations has stayed the same or grown. So so these naysayers are just complaining for no reason. He's being disingenuous because while the number of licenses may have stayed the same, the type is changing. You know, a, a, a McDonald's, uh, a fast casual salad place, and Lutess have the same health department license, but they don't have the same economic impact, you know, f- you know, t- you know, for the city. And we have, in fact, seen f- an impact on this. You know, last year was the first year that we can remember where the number of jobs in our industry, according to government statistics, decreased. Yeah, about 6,000 jobs in the full-service restaurant industry were down in 2018, and that trend's continuing in 2019. And one of the things, too, just who is opening up restaurants, um, you see a lot of real estate developments uh, where 
restaurants or food service has become the anchor. I feel like everyone wants an experience, which you mentioned earlier. At least, you know, it has created more opportunities for for people to open businesses. Back in the old days, uh, the hotels operated their own food and beverage. Uh, more recently, the last 20 years, they want an independent restaurateur that, you know, or a celebrity chef to be in. So at least it's another, another business other than just a hotel business. It's not the end of the world. So the big trend that's happening or being discussed around the country is recreational marijuana. Here in New York City, Every time we get excited, like something's going to pass, it's going to become legalized recreational use here in New York. There's some other politics that get in the way. But what's your view? Uh, There's been discussion that cannabis could be regulated by the state liquor authority under a similar system. Clearly, you have years of experience dealing with the state liquor authority. Um, What does cannabis mean for the restaurant nightlife industry if it's legal here? So, yes, our firm has uh, gotten involved with this very early on. We we uh, we analyzed the bills that were pending in Albany. We wrote an article in one of the uh, cannabis trade magazines about what to expect in New York should the law pass. So we're actually very up on it. Um, it's what we tell people who call us from our industry is is relax, don't get excited. Uh, the uh, the bills that are pending and to the extent that they have any chance in passing um, will not allow you to light up a joint in your local neighborhood bar. Not going to happen. Current bills that are pending will not allow chefs to create dishes with marijuana in it. Um, we are advocating for something like that or bartenders, you know, to put it in, you know, to put it in you know, oil or whatever in drinks. It's very limited as far as our industry is concerned. I mean, the good news is none of the bills are, um, are stating that you cannot have a cannabis license if you have a liquor license, just not in the same location. So that's why we are involved, because uh, we do anticipate that a lot of the people who are in our industry will be interested in one of the, you know, one of the levels of that industry. The bills that are currently pending do regulate it like alcohol uh, and do, will have a separate bureau within the state liquor authority you know, regulating you know, cannabis. Um, and when I say it does regulate it like alcohol, it has a three-tier system, just like alcohol. There are the growers or manufacturers in alcohol. There are the distributors. And there are the retail stores. Um, and they are uh, going to have restrictions just like an alcohol that you, know, you cannot be a grower and a retailer. That's not the same, that's not the same for every state. Uh, 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 Las Vegas, uh, Nevada, for example, you do have the three tiers, but you can have that integration. One company can own all three. Uh, New York is not going to be like that. Uh, so you will have to pick you know, which area you want to get into. Most people want the retail. And that's the part that's le- most still up in the air and most being debated. Um, will localities be able to opt out? If so, how will they be able to opt out? Um, how many stores? Who will get preferences for those retail licenses. Uh, there is a social justice element to, to all of this you know, right now. Um, and there's a feeling that those communities that were n- most negatively impacted by the enforcement of low-level marijuana laws should have a preference in, in getting those stores. Yet some of those are the very communities that don't want the stores in their neighborhood because they feel they, they were overwhelmed with drugs. So there's a lot to be worked out. It's still remains to be seen whether it's going to happen legislatively. Of, of the 10 states that have recreational marijuana legalized, none of them did it 
legislatively. It's a tough vote for some people to take when parent-teacher association groups, when law enforcement groups are arguing against it. Every other, every state, with the exception of Vermont, um, did it through a referendum. The people demanded it, and then the legislature had to come up with laws and rules to regulate it. But the referendum required it. Vermont's the only one that did it legislatively, and they, and they, they don't have recreational stores. Uh, they allow for homegrown, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it really doesn't count. Um, so it remains to be seen how this can happen. The governor wisely wanted to be part of the budget because that's how controversial things get done in New York State. When it's part of the budget, then all the legislators are just voting on the budget. That happens to be one of the items in there, and it gets passed by being part of the budget. When it was taken out of the budget, that means it has to be a standalone vote just on marijuana legalization. And, you know, and um, right now it does not look like there's the votes for it. Interesting. So after all your years in this industry, a restaurateur comes to you or someone that wants to open up their first restaurant, what do you tell them? <laughs> My standard joke is, especially if the person is Jewish and has any background in that, the reason why I say that is when you, if you want to convert to Judaism, tradition says that the rabbi is supposed to send you away three times to think about it, to make sure that you're really serious about it. And if you come back a fourth time, they will study with you and they'll go through conversion. <laughs> so when I get a landlord now, which is typical, says, I got this vacant store, it's been vacant forever, you know, maybe I think, you know, me and my son will go into the, you know, the nightclub business or the restaurant business or the bar business, I try to, I give them that story and I say, you know what, do you make a living being a landlord? They say, yes, it's be a landlord. You know, uh, don't go into this business if you don't know what you're doing. It's a rewarding business if you do know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, everybody's going to make money but you. <laughs> so uh, all joking aside, I love this industry. I've been working, you know, helping it uh, for, for decades now. Um, it, it, there's nothing like it. But you've got to think twice now if you're inexperienced about, you know, about going into this business. Yeah, definitely not. And you need proper, I mean, again, not to, not to be self-serving, but you need proper professional advice, both from your, your lease, you know, to your applications. This is not a, uh, a do-it-yourself industry anymore. You know, if you sign a lease and you don't have a contingency for community board approval for your liquor license uh, and you already, you know, and you can't get out of that lease and they've got, you know, two months rent or security and you then go to the community board and they say over our dead body, you know, or didn't you notice there's a church across the street and you can't get full liquor here? I mean, you need professional advice long before you even sign a lease. Very good tip. I mean, we tell people that all the time that you cannot just go into it because you want to open up a great place for your friends and family to come eat and drink. You have to really be a real true business person and spend the money up front. I know people don't have tons of money to waste, but whether it's, you know, having someone review your lease with contingencies related to your liquor license and the community board or an employee handbook, a manual, spend the money up front because if you don't do it now, it is going to cost you so much more in the long run. And, and all we- these websites that the small business services has, that the city has, and all these self-help things are great, but they're great to give you the picture of what you need. At the end of the day, if you read from the fine print on a lot of those things, you need, you need professionals. So we will leave it at that. Rob Bookman, Pesetsky and Bookman, founder, counsel, friend at the Hospitality Alliance, and so much more. I'm sure we'll talk again. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, so people will talk to a lawyer, and you may think, well, 
I have a lawyer, and so, and that lawyer may look at things like the security deposit, how much rent, all sorts of other protections, but most lawyers who handle leases are not well-versed in alcohol licensing issues, which is a very unique and uh, niche field of practice, and so there are a lot of folks out there who feel that they're well-protected because they got a lawyer to review their lease or a lawyer represented them in their lease, but that lawyer may not know a thing about the alcohol-related issues, the alcohol-related contingencies, and let's face it, when you're opening up a restaurant and certainly a bar, uh, you're not going to have much business without alcohol. So that's just as important, if not more important, than what your security deposit's going to be or some other legalese. In a big thank you to all of our members. It's all of you that support this podcast. So if you love the show, you're in the industry, you're not yet a member, go to thenycalliance.org, click on the membership tab, find out what it's all about. Hope you join our community. If you like the show, make sure to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on social media. Both Twitter and Instagram is at the NYC Alliance. That's at the NYC Alliance. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn at New York City Hospitality Alliance. I'm your host, Andrew Ridgey, and as always, a big thank you to our producer, Mr. Jason Latrell. Got it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>